we, we get interested in Revelation because it tells us what's going to happen. But the, the major point, the major purpose for the book is to help us understand the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at the, how it unfolds, um, we, we see the, uh, the, the scroll that cannot be opened. Well, who's going to open the scroll? Oh, well, there's only one who's worthy. Only one has the, uh, the right to do that. Only one has the power to do that. Well, who is he? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the, the lamb who was slain. He's the one who is majestic and all-powerful. And so the whole book really emphasizes the, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to, to you know, start our study with that reminder so that we keep that at the forefront. All of the, all of the amazing things that happen that unfold in the book are amazing because Jesus is behind it, because it's all pointing to him. So we want to remember that uh, we get caught up in, in the fun debates over the order of things and the meaning of things, uh, but the point really is Jesus. So we want to keep that in mind. As we begin our study, uh, as we begin our study together, uh, we do need to do some preliminary stuff. It's just not going to work well for me today. Uh, we need to agree on some things ahead of time. And so this is what I've called our initial agreements. If we can agree on these things, then we can move forward tonight. All right? The first one is we're going to take our time. What I mean by that is this is not going to be a survey or a summary of the book of Revelation. We're going to start tonight in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go until we run out of time. And then next week we'll get together and pick up where we left off, and then we'll go until we run out of time. We want to take our time for a number of reasons. One, because there's so much rich stuff here. It deserves a lot of time. But two, um, I want us to agree to take our time so that it doesn't become a lecture. I don't want it to be John talking and everyone listening. I want us to have a conversation. So we're agreeing to take our time. That means you can feel free to interrupt any time, except right now. You can interrupt at any time. <laughs> and say, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Or don't you think it could be this other way? Or, you know, my preacher always said, whatever. And let's have those conversations along the way, okay? So we're gonna take our time. The second thing is I, I, we're gonna agree to have open minds. Uh, precisely for the reason I just kind of kidded about, your preacher told you how this is supposed to all lay out, or your Sunday school teacher told you how, uh, what it's supposed to be. And we're going to look at options. We're going to look at, at uh, what others might, how others might view the passage. One of the things that has bothered me about the study of end times is that we went through an entire generation of teaching that said, this is the only way, and this is the biblical way, and if you don't believe it this way, then you're wrong. And I have a problem with that, because um, when, we look at, when we look at apocalyptic literature like this, liter uh, uh, literature that is 
primarily symbols. We have to figure out what is symbolic, what is literal. Even if we agree on what is symbolic, what is that symbol? What does it represent? So there, there is a lot of interpretation here. So we want to keep open minds as we go forward, all right? And, uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute so you don't throw stones at me. Let the scriptures speak. Again, what we do um, is we want somebody to tell us what's the order and what does it mean. Then we go to the Bible and we say, I know the order and I know what it means, so I'm going to go to the Bible now and I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to prove myself right. Okay? What I want us to do is have such an open mind that we go to the scripture and we say, scripture, you speak to me instead of me speaking to you. All right? So we're going to work on that through this experience together. And then let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Tell me what you're thinking. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. We're not going to always agree, and I'm cool with that. All right? Well, this is, this, is not, uh, this is not intended to make sure that we all come out of this thing thinking exactly alike. Um, I want us to have a conversation that's based on Scripture. Let Scripture talk to us, and then let's talk about it together. Okay? Fair enough? Can we agree to all that? All right. Then, as we get into Revelation, let me tell you that there are, uh, <clears throat> there are different approaches to understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, first, we have to think about different kinds of interpretation. And we can lump all of the different styles of interpretation into four groups, or four perspectives, if you will. I've listed those in black. And don't worry about, don't worry about the, the, the terminology. We're, we're gonna work really hard to avoid the the, the goofy theological terms, but I needed some way to put a handle on what we're talking about. So for tonight, this is a handle, okay? One, one uh, perspective is what's called historicist. Now, these, uh, th this perspective says that the, uh, the book of Revelation tells the story of the church. So as everything that unfolds as we look at Revelation is telling part of the story of, of the church. And most people interpret, interpret that in terms of the Western church, which is kind of odd. But this, this perspective, every time you look into Revelation, if you come at it from a historicist point of view, you're going to see, you're going to see the symbols describing a part of the church story. Preterist comes from a, a word, uh, a Latin word that means past. So the preterist thinks that everything in Revelation has already happened. That it's describing um, early reaction around, you know, the big stuff starting around 70 AD. It's describing big stuff that has already happened. The futurist looks at Revelation as describing things that are going to happen in the future. And starting at chapter four, I'm a futurist. 
I believe chapter 4 through 22 is talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet. That we're, it's going to unfold for us. All right? And then there's the spiritual perspective, which says all of, all of the, the um, that we, all that we find in Revelation is, um, it, it's not literal. It's, it's figurative. It's spiritual truths that, uh, that we can apply at any time you know, for any, any believer at any time, okay? So different folks come into Revelation with these glasses on, and we have to be honest with ourselves about which glasses are we wearing as we come in to read it, right? And I've already told you that my glasses are the glasses of the futurist. I, I think Revelation is unfolding for us, telling us what's going to happen in the future, all right, those are, that's the interpretation approach, the, the different approaches with interpretation. There's also different approaches as it deals with rapture and tribulation. And what I mean by that is uh, rapture, which by the way, the word rapture never appears in the Bible. The Bible never says there is a word rapture. Um, but the rapture is the, uh, the idea that uh, the church is taken from the earth and uh, brought up to the heaven with Jesus, okay? The fun, the fun discussion comes, when does that happen? Is the rapture before the tribulation? Now, the tribulation is a time, most people believe, think of it in terms of a literal seven years, but it is a time of really bad stuff as God brings judgment on the world hope, uh, in hopes that uh, he will uh, convince the world that he is real, what he says is true. He judges the world very harshly during seven years. Um, some believe that the church is raptured before that tribulation starts. We call those folks pre-tribbers, pre-tribulation. Rapture first, then the tribulation. Some folks think it happens in the middle. There are three and a half years of bad stuff. Then the church is taken away in rapture. And then there's three and a half stuff of really bad stuff. So it gets worse in the last half. But the church is raptured in the middle. And then there are those who believe that after the tribulation, most likely seven years, after that tribulation, at the end, is the time that the church is raptured to meet Jesus in the air. Okay? So as we go, we're going to see pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Another, uh, another of the areas of approach, another kind of approach that we have to, to talk about is the second coming and how that relates to what we call the millennium. Millennium is a thousand-year reign, or Jesus and his people reign here on earth for a thousand years. When does Jesus come back in relation to that thousand years? You, you basically have three, but one of those gets broken down into two. You basically have three. The uh, premillennials believe Jesus comes back, and that ushers in the millennial age. Post-millennials, you can guess. 
think that the millennial age happens and then Jesus returns to finish it all out. And then the all-millennialists believe that we are currently in the millennial reign. That the thousand years is symbolic of a, of a set time. We are currently in that reign. And um, Jesus is slowly taking uh, uh, power. He is slowly changing the world so that he, he, is, uh, he will ultimately be uh, reigning with us and then the end time. So you've got the all millennialists. We're kind of in the millennium already. Post-millennial, Jesus comes at the end. And premillennialists. Now, premillennialists gets broke get broken into two groups. They're the premillennial dispensationalists. Dispensation is a time period. Dispensationalists see the world, see world history, and especially Revelation as happening in periods of time. Then there is the historic pre-millennialists. The reason they're called historic is this view, historic premillennialism, is actually older than the premillennial dispensationalists. These folks that see everything in seasons or epics, that thought only came to be uh, popular in the late 18, the very late 1800s. It's still relatively new. The historic view of those of us who are premillennial is very similar to it. It's just we just differ on a few things along the way. And, uh, and I, just so that I'm honest with you ahead of time so you know where we're going, I am a futurist. Don't yell at me. I'm a post-tribber, and I'm historic premillennialist. I say all that up front so you know as we get into our discussions that I, I'm being honest about my own biases. Don't you get up and walk out. <laughs> I'm being honest about my own biases. I hope you will as well so we can have an open and honest conversation. All right? So that's where we are. Now, let's talk about the book. In order to understand the book of Revelation, we have to talk about some of these things first. First is the style. So we might use the word genre, but it's the style of writing. As you know, the Bible has a lot of different styles of writing you're not going to interpret a history book the same way that you would interpret the song book, which is Psalms in the middle of the Bible. You, know, you, you, you deal with those differently because songs act different than history. The Bible has all these different styles of writing genres. Revelation is apocalyptic style. Matter of fact, the word revelation really is apocalypsis. It is apocalypse. That word originally meant to, to uncover, to unveil. Over time, we've changed the meaning of apocalypse. Now when you hear that word, you think chaos, bad stuff, you know, scary time. Um, 
that's not originally the way it, that's not what the word really meant to start with. It meant to uncover or unveil. And that takes us to the title. The title of the book is given to us in the first two words. If you look in, John, in Revelation 1.1, it says the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the explaining. Apocalyptic literature has certain characteristics that you don't find in history or poetry or some of those other styles. Apocalyptic literature was almost always was written to people who were experiencing um, persecution. Apocalyptic literature came to people during time of persecution. Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation. And the apocalyptic literature gave them hope that you're not going to be here in this persecution forever. And one of the ways that it did that was through the use of dramatic symbols. So Revelation is a book of symbolism. Now, the, the struggle becomes what part is literal and what part is symbol. And we'll, and we'll work on that. But I don't know any scholar who would claim that none of it is symbol. That claim can't be made because it is apocalyptic literature. All right. So uh, we have to understand the style. We have to understand the title. You and I grew up calling this book Revelations. And it's, it's not. It's the revelation. It's one. John unveiled the truth. This this one time. It's the revelation. It's the apocalypse, the unveiling. The author is, uh, is John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, not John the Baptist. This is the same John who wrote the gospel, the same John, I believe, who wrote the epistles, uh, first and second, third John. Um, by the way, the, uh, John wrote the gospel of John to tell us to believe. He wrote the epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, to tell us to be sure. And then he wrote Revelation to tell us to be ready. All right. John is the one who was Jesus' closest friend. John referred to himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which is interesting, in the gospel he didn't like to use his name and yet he uses it here to clarify why he has the right to, uh, to speak, to write these words. He is, uh, he's saying, I know what I'm talking about because I was close to Jesus. All right. The date, um, there, there are two options but really the first option, I just don't see any validity. We know that it was written during a time of terrible persecution. So it either happened during Nero's reign, when Nero was the Roman um, bigwig, or Domitian. And you look at the dates, you look at how it all came out, you look at the seven churches that are about to be mentioned when they were suffering persecution, and really, the, the best date has to be while Domitian was the, uh, the Roman, what would he be? Like the, the top dog Roman dude. Yeah, the emperor. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, which means that um, John would have been in his, probably his 90s when he experienced this, wrote it, recorded it for us. Um, he is on the Isle of Patmos. Well, what the heck is that? It's a very small island. Uh, some historians say it was about 10 miles long, about six miles wide. Very small island. What happened in that day was, um, it was fairly common practice. There were all these little bitty islands out here that had been formed by volcanoes. And they're nothing but volcanic ash, so nobody was settling out there. They're just little, little chunks of land. And uh, kind of like putting people in prison, the Romans would strand people on those little islands. You can't get off because it's surrounded by water, and it's just a terrible place to live. And John, because of his faith in Christ at a time that it was illegal to be a Christian, was banned, if you will, to this little island of Patmos. So while he's there, he has the visions and he hears from the Lord and he writes what he hears and sees. Okay. If we look at uh, verse 1, we get a sense of how this writing happened and very soon we'll see who he wrote it to. So let's start at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's exciting already. I'm what? One, two, three, four. I'm five words in and I have to stop already because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ in two ways. One, it's the revelation that came from Jesus Christ, so it is of Jesus Christ. But two, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals Jesus to us. And that is the point of the book, in my opinion. As we go through this whole study, remember how it starts. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals Jesus to us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. God explained. You remember in the Gospels there is a time when Jesus says, even I don't know some stuff. You remember that? I think it was talking about exactly when, the, when all this stuff's going to unfold. Even I don't know the day or the hour. I don't know. Because God hasn't revealed that to me. Only the Father knows. All right? So there was some stuff that God the Father knew, God the Son did not know. In this case, look, it says God gave to Jesus the revelation. God revealed it all to Jesus. Now... Uh, Jesus passes it on. It says uh, in the beginning of verse 1, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, Jesus. God the Father reveals these truths to God the Son. God the Son then chooses to, to give that information to his bond servants. That's, that's followers, that's believers, okay? And the way he chooses to do that is through a messenger. When you see the word angel, remember in the Bible, an angel was a messenger. We're the ones and the artists who came before us 
We're the ones who put angels in white clothes with feathery wings and a gold halo. The word angel means messenger. So God the Father gives it to God the Son. God the Son gives it to a messenger. The messenger brings it to John. Okay? Now, uh, verse uh, 2 who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John bore witness to the word of God. What is the very first few words of the gospel of John? Do you remember? The gospel of John. What's the very first few words? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. John understood Jesus, the Word, the Logos, the, the expression of God. So see, see the power of that statement then in verse 2? John says, I'm the one who bore witness to the Word of God. When? When he wrote the Gospel. He told us about the word when he wrote the gospel. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ. John testified about all that Jesus did through the gospel. Then in his letters and now as he writes this, he is testifying to the truth of, the, of Jesus Christ. Even all that he saw. John is going to write down everything that he sees. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Understand the threefold uh, uh, communication with the Bible. There's, there's three steps to using the Bible in the right way. He said, blessed are they who, who uh, reads, Blessed are those who hear and then those who heed, who do it. It's interesting that the one who reads, that's singular. Those who hear, that's plural. Why? Because that's the only way they could have understood this to happen. They didn't have these, right? The only way they could have understood this is that one would have had a scroll and he would have read the scroll to the gathering, to the people. So blessed is the one who reads and all who hear, but then all who heed, who actually do allow the word to change their lives, right? To be affected by it because the time is near. Verse 4 tells us who the letter is written to. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now we've talked about this a number of times. I love how in the New Testament times they, they wrote letters differently than we do. You know, when, when we write, of course we don't write letters anymore, but before email when we wrote letters, we would say, Dear Lisa, blah, 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 love, blah, 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 blah. Yours truly, John. We start with an address. Who's it going to? And then you got to read the whole thing to get down to the bottom to figure out who's writing to you. They were smarter than we are. They did it backwards. 
they start, hey, this is John, and I'm writing to the seven churches. You know, we, we've always done it backwards. Every letter I ever got was a Dear John letter. <laughs> so John has done, it, has done it backwards, and I love it. This is from John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He's writing to specific people in specific churches. The seven churches in Asia. And he starts his letter. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Yes. Please. Thank you. Very good. There are, you're right, at that, by this time there are a bunch of churches around. But he is writing to these seven. Now, he's going to list them in a minute. And when he lists them, you will see that he goes in clockwise, geographically. He goes in a clockwise order as he lists them. And we believe that was probably because that was the circuit that was, that, that the carrier used to carry the letter. The, who, however they distributed this letter. Start here and work your way around like this. Now, the fact that it was circular also suggests that as these churches got them, they distributed them to other churches as well. But they're addressed to these seven. He wanted to make sure these seven got the letter for sure. Good. Thank you, Larry. Do that anytime. I'm going to depend on you to help me through this. Larry is, uh, is, is far and above an expert on this stuff compared to me, so lead us. Um, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and... Oh, here, here. Uh, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, on the surface, I have always thought that has to be Jesus. The one who is, he's in heaven right now. Who was, he came to earth the first time. Who is to come? He's coming back. But as you study, as I study this deeper, I come to the realization those phrases are, are used of God the Father. This is God the Father. Who is. He revealed his name as Yahweh, a form of the word to be. He said, I am. That's where Yahweh comes from. I am. In other words, here John says he is the one who is. God chose his name I am because all the other gods in the world are not. <laughs> he is. And it says, who was in the beginning God. So before time, God was. Before anything, God was. And no matter what we're about to find out is going to happen in the future, no matter what happens and how far it goes, he will be. Now let me show you why I think this is God the Father. For a number of reasons, and it becomes even more clear later, but, but even right here, look. 
This is from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, here's the first, in my opinion, the first symbol, and it's the number seven. Seven doesn't mean there are seven holy spirits. Seven is the number of completion, of perfection. So when he says there are seven spirits, he is saying this is the perfect, the complete, the Holy Spirit who is before the throne of God. And then look, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Do you see why the first one couldn't have referred to God the Son? Because it says now, and Jesus. So, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So you have the, 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 so many folks have problems with the Trinity. I don't understand how we have problems with the Trinity when scripture clearly refers to three separate persons. There is the one who was, who, or who is, who was, who is to come, who is sitting on a throne. There is the perfect, complete spirit before him, and there is Jesus Christ, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father. And it says, uh, now, now, as soon as he mentions Jesus, he wants to explain who Jesus is. So I'm in the middle of verse 5. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. When I taught this in, there's no, oh, this is going to be so hard. Uh, when I taught this in, um, where were we? Thank you, Honduras. When I taught this in Honduras, I got to this place and pointed out that he was the firstborn of the dead. And someone says, no, Lazarus came back before he did. The daughter of Jairus came back before he did. There are people in the Old Testament who came back to life. So how is he the firstborn of the dead? And, and that was a really good question. And the really good answer is, it's not firstborn in order. It's firstborn in preeminence or in importance. He is the firstborn among all who have been born of the dead. Does that make sense? He's number one. He's number one. He's number one. So in verse 5, we learn that Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the, the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of all kings. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He loved us before we could love ourselves, before we deserved his love. The Bible says that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that that is the demonstration of God's love. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love is what took Jesus to Calvary. And it says that when he did that, he released us from our sins by his blood. 
And we remember in the Old Testament when uh, they would get the, 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 the goat, we would call it the scapegoat. You remember the scapegoat? And they would pray over the scapegoat. All the sins of all the nation would be placed on that scapegoat. And then he'd be sent out into the wilderness out to die somewhere. Carrying the sins of the people and dying. Carrying that sin. We see over and over in scripture how the, in the Old Testament how animals are sacrificed. And by their blood on the altar people are forgiven. All of that pointed to Jesus so that we could better understand why he would die. And he is speaking of Jesus then as he goes on into verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom. When Jesus came, he came to declare the kingdom. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come to declare the kingdom. And then when Jesus arrived, that's what he did. The Sermon on the Mount is an introduction to the kingdom of God. What does it take to, to, be, uh, to be a part of a kingdom? It takes at least one, it takes one king and at least one subject. There's a kingdom. You're in the kingdom if he's your king. But then it says he made us to be a kingdom. That we, we share in ruling in some way. And then the part that Baptists really love, he made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We are the priests. Jesus made us the priests to God and to our God and Father. Uh, a, a, a foundational doctrine of our heritage as Baptists is what we call priesthood of the believers. That we are the priests, which means that we go directly to God. It also means that we have direct responsibility for ministry. All of us are ministers in some way. We all have some calling. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen breaks into basically a, a, a kind of a, a doxology, if you will. He says Jesus, and then he just lets loose for a little bit. All right? It's a great, it's a great experience. Because of time, we're going to stop here. Actually, we're, we're, we're going to pause here. Because what happens, starting at verse 7, um, John has, he sees Jesus. There is an amazing vision that we're going to look at. And, and after that vision, we're going to fast forward to 119. Now, next week, we're going to come back and see the vision. I'm not going to leave anything out. But I, I really, we have to get to 119 before we go home tonight. Because in my opinion, and the opinion of all the other really smart scholars, Revelation 119. Those of you who don't know me well, that kind of stuff is kidding. I'm not I'm just Revelation 119 is, in my opinion, the outline for the whole book of Revelation. In, in 119, we get the outline. There are three major sections to the book of Revelation. There is first the vision that we just skipped over. Then there are, in, in chapters 2 and 3, 
there are the letters to the churches that are alive and worshiping and working right then and there while John is writing. And then starting in chapter 4 through chapter 22, there is, we futurists believe, there is an explanation of what's going to happen in the future. So look at, at Revelation 1.19. Therefore write these things which you have seen. Remember this is right after the vision. This vision drives the whole book because the whole book is about Jesus. So the vision that we're going to look at next week drives the whole thing. And he is, said, he, is, he is told, write down the things which you have seen, section one of Revelation, and the things which are, section two, that's chapters two and three, the things that are, write to the churches about problems that we see in the churches right now today that they need to take care of right now today, the things that are, and then and the things which will take place after these things. In my opinion, chapters five through, I'm sorry, four through 22, the things that will take place, all right? So Revelation 1.19 is the outline, the things you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will be, okay?